Good morning, ARC. Good to see you all this morning. It's the day the Lord has made. I hope you are glad in it. You sounded like you were glad singing this morning. Amen. Praise be to God. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Esther. The book of Esther. Uh, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, you know it comes after Ezra and Nehemiah. It comes before the book of Job. book of Esther. And as you turn there, let me say a word of welcome again to those who are visiting with us, particularly those who are visiting with us for the first time. Uh, we are glad to have you with us and, and glad to have you worshiping with us. Let me say just a couple things about us as a church that might help you get to know us a little bit. First and most importantly, um, we do not take ourselves seriously, but we do take the word of God and the gospel seriously. So everything having to do with God's word and, and God's son and salvation through his name, that we take seriously, far more seriously than we do ourselves. Uh, here's another thing to know about us. We love our neighborhood. We've been called to, into existence as a church family uh, in order to, yes, be a family and to worship God together and to care for each other, but also to care for our neighbors and to care for the place where the Lord has planted us. And so we want to have a keen sense of a mission in our neighborhood. And then the last thing is that little thing, family. The Bible says that if you're a Christian, you are a member of the family of God, the household of God. Isn't that good news? And yet that's something if you, well, all of us have a family. Uh, that, that's something that you know you have to learn to become, isn't it? Yeah, work on being a family. And by God's grace, we are learning and growing and, and being the family that he's called us to be. Last thing to say by way of introduction is we are committed to the preaching of the Bible. Now, don't take that for granted. That's not true, actually, of every church, sadly. But we are committed to the preaching of the Bible, and we're committed to a certain kind of preaching of the Bible, which is commonly called expositional preaching. So my job as a preacher is to take a passage of Scripture to explain to you its meaning, apply it to our lives. So I'm, I'm meant to expose the meaning of God's Word and to give it to you for your life. Right? And we want to preach that way right through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because that's how God gave us the Bible. He didn't give us the Bible in snippets and sound bites. He gave us whole arguments, whole letters, whole books of history, like the history that we're about to consider here in, es in Esther. And we want to preach that way, line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Um, in preaching that way, I'm also trying to model how to read the Bible, right? So if you leave a sermon at ARC and, and you leave thinking two things, oh, I, I think I understand what that text of the Bible is saying, and you leave thinking, he's not that impressive a preacher, I could do that, then I'm doing my job, right? If you, if you are in awe of the preacher, but not of the God of the scripture, things is backwards, you want to leave in awe of God and having felt you understand his word better. And this is why we preach the way we do. Here's one more reason why we preach the way we do. Because if you preach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Bible, through books of the Bible, you will come to some issues that are hard to deal with and that we would rather avoid, but that it's good for us spiritually to wrestle with. God put it in the book. It's meant for us, and we, we ought to deal with it. In that way, God sets the agenda, not the preacher, not the culture. 
So that's why we preach the way we preach, and we pray that it feeds your soul. The Word of God is not just to be heard, but to be held. Get a good grip on it. Apply it to our lives and live it. And with his help, that's what we want to do with Esther this morning. Now, Esther is an interesting book. It is famously observed that in the book of Esther, God is actually not mentioned. And some people kind of stumble at that. They kind of, you know, is this really good spiritual literature? God's not mentioned, things of that sort. But hold on for a moment. How many days in our lives is God not mentioned? How many conversations do we have where God's not mentioned? Now, here's the question. If God's not mentioned, does it mean God's not there? Of course not. Most of God's great work he does in silence. Most of God's great work he does behind our backs. Most of his great work we won't know, we won't see until the fullness of time when it's revealed uh, in, in sort of clear color to us that God had been working all along. And here's the thing, beloved, sometimes God lets us see the genuine, the genuine ugliness of the world when he steps back in his silence. Then we can see life for what it really is. Then we can see the, the pain of this world and, and to recognize it. Then we can see our need for God. And what we're going to see as we go through the book of Esther is precisely that. This silent God has kind of stepped back. The world is sort of spinning as the world does. And we're going to see ugliness and we're going to see pain. And in the midst of it, I pray that we will begin to feel more deeply our need for God for his presence, for his power, for his deliverance. He's a God who works in improbable places, in improbable ways to deliver his people. We want to learn from Esther to expect the beauty of God's grace and protection, even when he's not named. So you in, Ex in, you in Esther chapter one yet? Amen. I was stalling for you. I'm glad you found it. We're going to think about this chapter, and I want us to think about our thoughts in three sections here. Number one, we want to observe the four qualities of a worldly leader. The four qualities of a worldly leader. We'll see that uh, with King Ahasuerus in Ex Esther chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. Number two, we want to see the six problems with a trophy wife. The six problems with having a trophy wife. Somebody already laughing. They already know. Verses 9 to 20. And then number three, we want to consider God's one answer to these problems. God's one answer to these problems. Look with me in Esther, beginning in verse 1, chapter 1. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, you may have a translation that says Xerxes, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver, 
on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abiktha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Miris, Marcina, and Mimukan, the seven princes of Persia and Medea, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Medea, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice will please the king and the princes. And the king did as Mimukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Y'all all right? I'm checking on the sisters real quick. Y'all all right? <laughs> Esther begins by introducing us to King Ahasuerus. You may again have a translation that says Xerxes. That was his more common name. He is the son of Darius, who was also the, the emperor or the king before him. He has been in the royal family. He is born into power. 
And, and we see four things about him. And the first is just that, that he is a powerful king. He Notice in verse 1, reigned from India to Ethiopia. That's a lot of territory. It includes hundreds of cultures and ethnic groups and, and languages. And he sits over this vast empire. And as a sign of his power, notice in verse 2, he sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel or the capital. In other words, his, his reign is so secure that he doesn't have to be out at war maintaining his territory. He actually can kick it on his throne in his capital without worry. There are no competitors to his rule. He's a powerful king. And he's been reigning at this point for three years. So he's a, a young ruler. He's, he's new to ruling from the throne. But again, so early in his, in his reign, he has no competitors. The second thing we notice about King Ahasuerus is not only is he powerful, but he's also wealthy. See verse 3? He gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and governors of his provinces were before him. Anybody who was somebody has been gathered together for this feast. He's consolidating his power and looking to show off his wealth. Look at verse 4. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. That's six months, beloved. I know some of y'all think you like to party. You celebrate your birthday for the whole month that it's in. My mother-in-law does that. But this is party. Six whole months, 180 days. And then the best part was at the end. Notice at the end in verse 5, he decides to throw a party not just for the ruling class, the nobles and the princes and the military leaders, but he throws a party for the, for the whole city, for the whole citadel, all of Susa, all the people in Susa. For seven days, they partied at his palace with his wealth on display. Which brings us to the third thing about this king. He's extravagant, isn't he? See, beloved, some people are wealthy, but you would never know it. And some people are wealthy, and they try to show it at every turn. That, that's how King Ahasuerus was. He was extravagant. He lived a, a, a lavish lifestyle. Think about the furnishings in verse 6. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver. You, you think your mama don't want you to sit on that couch with the plastic cover on it? Let it be gold and silver. Couches of gold and silver. Notice, on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stone. The pavement was made out of precious stones and marble. I mean, can't you see Tiffany Haddish in there? This is nice. <laughs> and he's extravagant with the wine, too. Did you notice that? See, they, everybody's drinking out of their own gold goblets and glasses. Archaeologists have found some goblets, some gold goblets that go back to this time, and almost all of them are different, uniquely carved. Verses 7 and 8 tell us that the drinks were served according to the bounty of the king. 
And he passed an edict, a law, that there would be no compulsion. In other words, no one was forced one way or the other to drink. But each person drank, verse 8, as each man desired. He's laying out a party and saying, listen, whatever is your pleasure, whatever is your delight, do it. It was extravagant. But I want you to see a fourth thing. He's also selfish. We don't want to get the wrong impression about Xerxes in this text. He's extravagant and lavish, but he's also selfish. Generosity was not the point. His own greatness was the point. His own splendor, his own glory was the point. He's got a look-at-me, look-at-me kind of character. He's self-centered. And we see his selfishness in at least two hints in this text. In verse 9, notice what the writer says. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace. And then the writer stresses this, the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Why add that little bit about ownership? Everybody know the house belonged to the wife, right? I remember when Christy and I bought our first home and and her dad, I could tell for the first time, really at that point thought I was all right. And I overheard him telling one of his friends, yeah, he done bought Christy a house. And I was like, no, I thought we went halfsies on this. Everybody know the house belonged to the wife. You, you get to put your name on the note, maybe. You get to live there. And after 30 years, you might get a little room that you can call your man cave, but the whole rest of the house belong to the wife. But not if you're a Hasserus and you're selfish. The writer's just giving us this glimpse into the, the craving ownership of this man. But do you know what else? The king not only thought he owned the palace, he also thought he owned his wife. That's what we see in verses 10 to 12. Verse 10 says he was married with wine. Seven days of drinking will do that to you. And while he's tipsy now, he sends his seven servants in verse 11 to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. You see, this, this whole command is, is given by someone who thinks he owns somebody. Pro tip, fellas, never get drunk. If you do get drunk, don't send Victor them to go get your wife talking about put on some clothes and come on over here and party with me. That's a bad move, fellas. Don't do that. He sends his seven eunuchs to go get his wife. And I just wish I could see Vashti's look. Victor knocks on the door. The queen said, put your crown on, put some clothes on, come to his party. Notice, so the men can look at you. You know, she got, I just need a sister to model this. She looked at Victor like this. <laughs> and she looked over there at the other women, because they've been partying seven days too. You know how women talk. She looked over at the other women. You tell the king. It was over at that point. It was over at that point. But what's happening in this request in verses 10 to 12? Well, in his selfishness, the king objectifies Queen Vashti. What does that mean? When we objectify someone, we demean them from the status of being persons to the status of being objects. 
He had just reduced his queen and his wife to being an object for the lustful, drunken looks of all the men at his party. He had just objectified her. He had just lowered her in that way. We don't talk about trophy wives anymore, but, but the objectification of women is still an everything thing. From catcalls and whistles to inappropriate comments and inappropriate touches to, to the over-sexualized images of popular media, society turns women into objects all the time, beloved. One study I read in preparation asked women to use an app on their phone to record when they face being sexually objectified and to record their feelings. They would do this for a week. The study found that more than 65% of women in the study face objectifying behavior at least once in that week. In that same study, um, the, the women reported seeing other women objectified on average four different times a week. So get this in your head that, that two out of the three women in here, six out of 10 women in here this week, last week, had some man say something inappropriate that objectified them or to do something inappropriate that objectified them. And they not only encountered that themselves, but they looked out on other women and saw that at least four other women that week, they saw the same kind of behavior. It's pervasive. And it's wrong. Researchers at Wesleyan University studied how women are displayed in magazine advertisements. They looked at 58 magazines. And they found that across 58 magazines, if a woman was featured in an advertisement, then 52% of the time she was sexualized and objectified in that advertisement. When they looked at magazines that cater to men, that number goes up to 76% of the time. Objectified. So this problem, it's not just an Esther problem in some time long ago with something outdated like kings. It's a today problem, as common as the magazines you pass in the grocery store. Now, what's the problem with turning his wife into a trophy wife? I'm going to suggest to you that there are six problems as we think about this text in verses 9 to 20, six things that we see that follow on from objectification. Number one, objectification ignores a woman's humanity. It ignores a woman's humanity. Look at verse 12. But Queen Vashti actually refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. I love it. I love it. The queen defied the king's command. This would have been unheard of in ancient kingdoms. This would have carried a serious consequence. It was unthinkable. But to understand Queen Vashti, all we have to do is ask ourselves, was Queen Vashti treated like she was someone made in the image and the likeness of God? She wasn't, was it? And if we were to believe that the ancient Jewish commentators, who, though the text didn't say this, uh, there's a tradition in Judaism that he asked her to come wearing nothing but her crown, then we have a woman here who knows something about her worth, who knows something about her dignity, who knows something about her value, who knows something about having standards for herself and not allowing herself to be treated beneath those standards, even if the one doing the treating is her king husband. 
I will suggest to you that the first hero in the book of Esther is not Esther. That the first hero in the book of Esther is not Esther's uncle Mordecai. That the first heroine in the book of Esther is right here, Queen Vashti, who stands up for her own dignity and self-respect. Someone might say, but Vashti was not submissive. I just want to say she wasn't stupid either. Uh, Everything that's being asked of someone in the name of submission is biblical submission. See, the thing about a trophy wife is that such a wife is, is, is not treated as a full human being, but an object without a brain, without feeling, without agency, without morality. When we objectify women or women objectify themselves, as sometimes happens, we steal their humanity. We can look at a woman and not see her. We can call for a woman and not consider her. And Queen Vashti wasn't having it. Here's the truth. All women are made in the image and likeness of God. And therefore, all women have dignity and value and ought to be treated as they are, as image bearers of God. All women think and feel and act and have moral standing. Women do not exist as objects of male desire. Women do not exist as trophies to be put in a display case. And when women are treated that way, we dehumanize them. We treat them less than human and make them objects. That's the first problem. The second problem is this. Objectification steals a woman's agency. It steals a woman's agency. In, in the last part of verse 12, King Ahasuerus, notice there, became enraged, and his anger burned within him. We might say today he big mad. He mad mad. And, and in fact, the king is so angry that he literally does not know what to do. That's what we see in verses 13 to 15. The king calls together his little wise men. He ain't learned his lesson from the eunuchs. He's going to another group of boys now. The seven princes of Persia and Medea, these are the, the text says, the only ones who regularly saw the king's face. They were the only ones who were regularly in his court before his throne. So these are the political good old boys. This is his inner circle. These are people who have the king's ear. And the king asked them, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Now, you know, you know he's tipsy and he ain't in his right mind because he's referring to himself in the third person. <laughs> right? And here's what I want us to recognize. At this point, things could have been different. Things could have gone a different way. The king could have chosen to go talk to his wife. He could have chosen to be a good husband, as well as a good ruler. But instead of being a good husband and a good king, by going to talk with his wife, the king talks with his drunk male friend. Instead of seeking understanding of his wife, he reaches for the law, which is actually an act of force, not love. 
by talking with his male friends instead of his wife, the, the king robs Queen Vashti of the ability to advocate for herself and act for herself. He takes away her control of her own life and her own choices. He takes away her agency. When we objectify people, very often their lives and their fate end up in the hands of a few elite. And when it comes to being objectified, notice, notice not what this text is illustrating for us. When it comes to being objectified, it doesn't matter how high you get in society. Vashti was queen. And yet she was still reduced to being an object for the lustful thoughts of men. You see, her, her climb up the social ladder didn't, didn't, didn't create for her an escape from the social dirt and, and, and pollution of, of the objectification and sexism and misogyny that women face. And so here's a room of men making decisions that affect her, and she can't be in the room advocating for herself. That's a problem. It's the stealing of agency. Number three, objectification serves the abuser instead of the abused. In verses 16 to 20, a man named Mimukin speaks. And the first thing he does is he begins to share with his reasoning, his reasoning with the king before he gives his recommendation to the king. So he says in verse 16, look there with me. Not only against the king... Has Queen Vashti done wrong? But also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. As the young people say, that escalated quickly, didn't it? How did this go so quickly from a husband and his wife having a misunderstanding in the midst of a party to know what she has done affects all us officials, all of the men, and all of the people in the, in the kingdom? Mamukin continues in verses 17 and 18. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Medea, who have heard all of the queen's behavior, will, excuse me, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. So this woman, Queen Vashti, refusing an unrighteous command from her king and husband, Ahasuerus, all of a sudden now is being portrayed as someone who is overthrowing the entire social order of all 127 provinces. It's amazing how when you stand up for yourself, there are people prepared to make you public enemy number one. It's amazing how when a woman stands up for her rights, there are people ready to cast her in the light of treachery and sedition and wickedness. And this is what, this is his reasoning. Now here's the question, who's at the center of his concern? It's not Vashti, because if he was a good friend to the king, a good friend to their marriage, he would be the kind of guy who would say, if it pleases the king, why don't you go talk to your wife? 
he would push them together. But no, he's pushing them apart. He's he's free for all of you who are married, free for all of you who are dating. Be careful who you take relationship advice from. Not everybody in your life is going to push you together with the person you're choosing. There are a lot of people who are in your life who, for their own reasons, would, would, would be happy to see you pulled apart. Be careful who you take relationship advice from. And so he, he's advising the king, hey, look, you need to do this to Vashti, not because of Vashti's well-being, not because of the king's well-being, but really because of his own. Really because of his attempt here to put men in the center and to put concern for men and their households in the center. He's not even really worried about Vastai's example rubbing off on all the noble women of Persia and Medea. He's worried that his power as a man will be undermined if this gets out. Now, it's at this point that we understand that the description of Ahasuerus in verses 1 to 8, with all this pomp and all this show and all this display of power, He's just performing. He's empty. He's so insecure that he and his boys have to try to create a law to suppress women in the entire province. It's not as powerful as he thinks he is. It's not as great as he thinks he is. They are together worried about their own power and they center men. Listen, understand this. The objectification of women is one way that men assert their dominance over women. What's happening when women are reduced from status as image bearers of God to objects um, for a man's delight, what's happening there is a power play that allows men to assert their dominance and control over women. That's why men are centered in his comments. This is a conspiracy to keep women, quote unquote, in their place. These powerful men are like, we can't let this spread like COVID. We need to get some social distancing in here. We need to move her over off by herself. Never let her see the king anymore. Never let this get out to the other women. We need to control this virus because they're concerned for themselves and not the one mistreated. Number four, objectification silences and banishes women. Notice the first part of Mimukin's recommendation in verse 19. If it please the king, let a royal order, that's the law, go out from him and let it be uh, written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed. So this is a perpetual law that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. In other words, let's use a permanent law to shut Queen Vashti out. They want to banish the queen. Well, make sure she never sees the king again. They want to ruin her reputation, deny her access. They want to silence her. And from this point in the, in the narrative in Esther, we don't hear of or see Vashti again. This is how women lose their voices in the stories of their own suffering. This is why so many women choose not to speak up when they've been objectified or abused or assaulted. The response of the powerful and the response of society is not to believe them, but to punish them. And beloved, the point I'm making here, that's only possible 
where you dehumanize and objectify people. And this is what's happened to Vashti. She's silenced and banished. Number five, objectification makes women replaceable commodities. I get this from the second part of Mamukin's recommendation in verse 19. Notice that second sentence. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. See, silencing and banishing wasn't enough. Vashti had to be replaced. Let, let the king give her position to another. But, but not just replaced, she had to be devalued. Notice now, another who is better than she. So now he's attaching a valuation to her. Now he's making her a commodity. A commodity is something that you trade and sell, that you buy. It's something that you, you barter for, that you assign value to, and you can raise that value or lower that value. We have entire commodity markets in the United States. If you wanted to, you can go out and invest in soy futures or corn, or you can go out and invest in oil. That's called a commodity. And that commodity's value goes up and down depending on what's happening in the market. Here now, this man has taken the queen and put her in a commodity market to be traded, to assign value high or low. Don't miss what he's telling the king. He's saying basically Vashti is just a thing, a thing that you can dispose of when you're tired of her or she displeases you. He's telling the king to trade up, to get a better model. This man is just throwing her away. And society does this because in too many people's minds, once again, women do not exist subjectively with their own thoughts, their own feelings, their own agency. In too many people's minds, women exist only objectively to be looked at, to be used. It's horrible. I trust and hope you see that. That in the midst of all of this glitter in the world's greatest empire at that time, it's this really, really ugly existence for women, including the king's wife, the queen. Which brings us to a sixth thing. Objectification becomes systemic. Becomes systemic. I want you to see this in verses 20 to 22. So when the decree, that is the law, made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mimukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man may be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. It would have been bad enough just to treat Vashti that way as an individual. Then maybe we could say, okay, that's the bad action of an individual that, that, that has an individual effect on Vashti, and we could sort of uh, sanitize it and individualize it and treat it as a bad day. But these men represent the entire government of the empire. They have come from all 127 provinces. They are there as leaders of those provinces, and they now speak for every home in the entire empire. 
what we are witnessing is the, system, the systemic, the systematic objectification and oppression of women and the use of law to do that. So after this law, what women experience cannot be written off as bad actions of a few individuals. It's what the system requires and what the system perpetuates. This oppression of women becomes now a feature, not a bug. It becomes, notice, cross-cultural in all the languages of the cultures. It becomes, notice, part of the intellectual fabric of the society. Notice there where it said is, it is in its own script. It's in the writings of the people, and to every people in its own language. The systemic injustice has a way of infecting and spreading across cultures. This law gets written and spoken from India to Ethiopia. All across Asia and North Africa, down into East Africa. The law is used to systematically establish the patriarchy and the oppression of women. Notice, in every home, let every man be master. Whether he is of high status or low status. You see, again, it wasn't class, it was gender. It's the fact that he was male that was supposed to privilege him in this society. Verses 21 and 22 are a pretty good illustration of how a bad night with bad counsel becomes bad policy and bad government with bad consequences for every household. What are we saying? Objectification denies a woman's humanity. It steals a woman's agency. It serves abusers rather than the abused. It silences and banishes the abused. It makes women replaceable commodities. And it becomes systemic across the whole of society. Beloved, this is how the sinful kingdoms of this world work, without exception. Every kingdom in the history of the world produces these kinds of results because of the reality of sin and the reality of our fallen nature. Doesn't matter how powerful the kingdom is, how vast the kingdom is, how rich the kingdom is. Sometimes we think that moral problems belong exclusively to the poor. Sometimes we think people are poor because they got moral problems. And we act that as if you got enough money, you, you don't have moral wickedness in your heart. But here we're seeing it from the top down, from the head down is the sickness flowing. And so, so you, these kinds of results are produced by every kingdom, by every government, by every nation in this fallen world, including these United States of America. There's no exception here. Just think about it. Just, just a couple quick factoids about the faring of women in this society, here in this country, over history. Not until about 1900 did, did women have property rights, and even then, mostly white women. Because prior to that, black women were considered property. Or, or women could not serve on juries until about the mid-1900s. You know, a woman couldn't have a credit card without her husband's signature on it until the 1970s. That's my lifetime and many lifetimes in this room. But we get proud about being Americans and we think of America as the city on the hill. America is almost a church in the minds of some Christians. 
But we have produced the same kind of wickedness. We have produced the same kind of injustice. We have produced the same kinds of mistreatment of people, and we're talking about women this morning, as every other country in the world. Why? Because America is not God's kingdom. America is not the city set on the hill. And when we confuse the church with this country, we participate in a kind of Christian nationalism that is idolatry, not biblical religion. We can go on, but the plain fact of the matter is that the kingdom of man is not generally kind to women. Man's kingdom suppresses women and objectifies them. And so what's the answer to all of this? Brings us to our final point. One answer. It's God's kingdom. God's kingdom provides another way. God's kingdom takes the kingdoms of this world, invades them, and brings a kingdom of an entirely different sort. Notice what we've seen in this text so far. We've seen a pagan king who, who is unrighteous and weak and governed by wine and governed by weak advisors. We've seen wealth and material lavishness, a kind of hedonism on display. We've seen a queen uh, robbed of her crown and subjugated and objectified for the, for the lust of drunk men. We've seen her banished, and we've seen the law used to enshrine this kind of behavior across the entire province. That's how the kingdom of this world has worked. But there's another king, and there's another kingdom that is not of this world. Think about the greatness of God's kingdom. I mean, Ahasuerus got marble floors, and he's got purple linen drapes, and he's got gold and silver couches. He's got enough wine for everybody to drink all that they want to drink. But what about this king of glory, whose glory really is glory? The gold goblets that Xerxes had have been buried for hundreds of years until archaeologists can find them. This power is gone. They don't exist anymore as a nation. But there's a king who's coming, whose, whose kingdom is not made with hands, whose foundations cannot be shaken, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, who is rich to us in mercy and grace, who is rich toward us in love. A king whose pleasure is not created by the drinking of wine, but by simply being in his presence. In his presence, there is pleasure forevermore, fullness of joy. This is the everlasting king. This is the king who says in Matthew 28 that he has all authority, all power in heaven and on earth is in his hand. Xerxes, through death, has long ago let loose of power. But this king never dies, rules forever. His throne is established in justice. And this king, this king of glory, we get to see his face. Xerxes only had seven in his inner circle who could look on the face of the king. But this king now, he allows all of his people, great and small, to look into his face. Indeed, we are longing for the coming of this king so that we might see him in his glory and we might see him face to face and seeing him might be transformed to be like him. 
Xerxes' whole program here is to demonstrate that ain't nobody else on earth like him. Jesus' whole program is to transform us to be just like him. To behold the beauty of this king face to face because we who believe in Jesus have become, as 1 Peter says, a royal priesthood. We have all of us, those who believe in Jesus, have become priests ministering in his presence every moment, every day. Our entire lives a sacrifice offered to him in love and joy. And what about women? Oh, I wish you would read the Gospels to see how this king treats women. How women come to him weeping because of their past, and he says, go, your sins have been forgiven. How women break open bottles of expensive oil and anoint his body when rabbis of his day wouldn't let women into their audience. How women were trustees to his ministry, financing his ministry, traveling with him, doing the work of the gospel and planting churches and evangelizing. How he had an earthly mother and treated her with honor even though he was God the Son. And how this kingdom transforms relationships between men and women such that Paul could say in Galatians 3, 28, that there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's no slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's a radical equality that's broken into the world because this kingdom and this king has invaded the kingdoms of men and established a different order. not mean that there are no males and females. Of course there are. It means that our dignity is not based on being male or female, but being made in God's image and being united to Christ through faith. We are all one in Christ Jesus. That's how we're to treat one another. And this kingdom invades even marriage and the home. Remember that text that Ashley read for us early in the service, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. You remember what's said there? That yes, wives are to honor their husbands and submit to their husbands as the church does to the Lord. And how that's followed in verse 25 with husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. The interesting thing is that Paul says that, that, that the husband is the head of the wife. But the use of head there is not what we see in Esther chapter 1, where, where men are arguing for their, for their own comfort. Men are concerned that their wives are submitting to them really by force. No, the submission that characterizes the Christian home is a submission that, first of all, flows from our worship of Christ. And and second of all, flows out of the the gospel of Christ, demonstrating itself practically in the love, the sacrificial love of a husband for a wife, out of his cherishing her. Now, if you were to read that text again and think about the metaphor there, Paul takes the very notion of head, and if he excused the pun, turns it on its head. Think about the head of your natural body. All the rest of your body 
serves and protects your head. Your hands wash your face. If, if there's something falling, your, your arms, you protect the head. The head is, is sort of regarded as the, the most precious part of the body, meant to be served by the body. But when you read verses 25 and 33, notice what Paul does with the head there, the husband. It is the husband, the head, who is to wash his wife, the body. I don't know when the last time you took your face and washed your arms and your legs, but that's what the image is doing there. The head is washing the body, and it is the head that is meant to nourish and cherish and protect the body. You see, in the kingdom, headship is servanthood. So the kingdom breaks into even marriage and the relationship between a husband and wife and reworks that relationship so that it is not based upon power and gender, but based upon the cross and love and worship. How are women regarded in the kingdom? 1 Timothy 5, 2, if you're writing down texts to look at, Paul says that we will treat women, particularly younger women, as sisters in absolute purity or in all purity. And not to be gawked at, not to be spoken of as objects and reduced to dehumanizing terms, not among God's people, not, not in his church. Paul says elsewhere in one of his letters that, that coarse joking, those kinds of things should never even come out of our mouths. But we are to look at our sisters with a renewed mind and with pure eyes. And we are to prize them for being the daughters of God that they are. We are to prize them for being the image bearers that they are. And we are to engage them as family, as sisters. We are to have relationships with them that nurture and protect and encourage and that allow them to flourish. So I think one of the saddest marks in, against the church in our day, and, and maybe for many days, but certainly in our day, is that too many churches are not places where women can flourish. They are places where women can be kind of put in a place, can have their roles sort of boxed in more narrowly than the Bible ever does. And there are places where there's a kind of Christian objectification that, that a woman is only ever looked at as a potential spouse or not, as if that's why they were only made. There's a kind of Christian objectification that will take things like submission and modesty and so on and, be, and use them in ways that, again, make the woman less than a 4D, full-color person. We ought to be careful of that. And we ought to be a place where women flourish. Last thing, and then we'll close. Because God's kingdom has broken into the world, and because God is righteous in all of his ways, and because we are called to follow him in all of his ways, then as God's people, we ought to be the kind of people who advocate against injustice and for justice. Now, that's simple logic, isn't it? It's amazing how disputed that is. 
but we ought to be people who take seriously sin and take seriously the effects of sin, not just in an individual's life, but in entire systems and cultures. And we ought to be people who bear witness against that, that there is another kingdom and that there is a, another rule that is in fact just. Now, we are not the kind of folks who think that we are going to fix all governments and usher in the kingdom by our advocacy. We know that that won't happen until Jesus comes. But we know that as we wait for Jesus' coming, we ought to live like we're part of that kingdom. And we ought to be salt and light in this kingdom, advocating and pushing for what is right and just and true for all who are marginalized and affected. And just two texts to think of, Psalm chapter 9, uh, chapter nine 7, and 8. The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. That's the Lord that we represent. Or, or think of Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. It says there, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Then he says this, learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. How clear is that? It's not possible to claim to be God's people while also being the kind of people that objectify women, that, that, that oppress women, or that stand by like we don't see it when it's happening. It is not consistent with God's rule. It is not consistent with God's call upon his people. And if God's people won't be just people, what hope is there for the world? What we read about in Esther 1, it's like a Polaroid negative, I'm dating myself, of God's kingdom. Almost everything done in this chapter is the exact opposite of what it's like in God's kingdom. Man's kingdom is so corrupt at the root that it cannot be reformed. Let me say that for you again. Man's kingdom is so corrupt at the root that it cannot be reformed. God's kingdom had to invade the world. A different kingdom with a totally different king and a totally different way of life. And beloved, you and I were made for God's kingdom. We were made for God, for his love and for his rule. We need new citizenship papers. We, we must give up our U.S. citizenship. We must give up our citizenship in every nation in this world so that we can move our citizenship into God's kingdom and really live like the citizens of that kingdom that we are. How does that happen? Well, there's, a, there's an immigration office you have to apply to. It's called the cross. At the borders of this kingdom, you're not beaten with whips. You're not turned away to detention centers. At the borders of this kingdom, the Bible says, whoever would believe on Jesus Christ would be saved. And in the moment that you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in, in the moment immediately before that, you would have been born again, born into a new life. And with that new birth, you get new citizenship papers. With that new birth, you get a, a new king, a new rule, a new law. You get a new family, a new country, a new citizenship. 
And you get to live now for the king of glory. The one who not only never dies, but the one who defeated death for you. The one who was crucified on Calvary's cross. The one who died and was buried for three days, but was raised three days later from the grave. Why? So that you and I could go from being rebels against his kingdom to being members of his kingdom. So that you and I could be translated from being um, folks who are out here exiles and pilgrims and sojourners with no home to having an eternal home in God's kingdom prepared for us by God's Son. It's at the cross and the empty tomb that you change your loyalty from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of God. The application is simple. All you have to do is confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Son of God who died for your sins, was buried for three days, and rose from the grave that you might have eternal life. And confess that you were a sinner, a rebel against God. But now you wish to give your life in faith entirely to God, body and soul, to follow him as your Lord. In that moment, you become God's child. You become a member of God's kingdom. You receive eternal life. And you receive the privilege of living face to face with God. This is what's offered to you in what we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And today, accept, accept, Receive this life that God gives through his son. Trust him and live forever in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. A kingdom in which you will be valued as God's own child, made in his image. And live this new life in the power that comes from his spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for your infinite wisdom in guiding writers to record your word for us. And we thank you that in an ancient text like Esther, we can see the reflection of our own times, even our own lives. And we thank you that in your word, you hold out to us a hope, a hope of not just being different in degree, but different in kind, a hope not just to get a little bit better, but a hope to be transformed, to be born again, to be given a new life through faith in your son, Jesus Christ. And this morning, we pray, Lord, that you would give someone listening the gift of faith and eternal life, that you give them grace to repent of their sins, to confess their sins, and to call upon your name to be saved from the judgment that's coming upon the world. For all the kingdoms of men wobble and totter like a Jenga tower. They come crashing down unless you are the foundation. And so we pray, Lord, Give people grace to take their stand upon the rock, 
Take your stand upon Christ and his word and his gospel and so not to fall when the winds and the rain come. We pray, O oh Lord, that you give us grace to be the kind of community of saints where our sisters flourish, where they are encouraged, where they are protected, where they're not treated like fragile dolls, but encouraged to, to flourish and to grow and to serve and to do all that you have called them to do. We pray, O oh Lord, against the objectification of our sisters, of all women. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would confront directly and graciously the ways in which men and sometimes women think that lead to a dehumanizing of women. We, we see it so often. And it's so confusing and pervasive in its effect that, that some women objectify themselves and think that they are exercising power. Lord, re remove the blinders. Give people eyes to see your king, Father, and to see your kingdom and give them grace to enter by the narrow way, recognizing that the broad way leads to destruction. So, Lord, move by your spirit, we pray. Help us as we study Esther to be the people of God you've called us to be, even when we don't see your name. Help us, O oh Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.